welcome to the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale. For this season of the podcast, our theme switches to natural materials and processes for the detection, destruction, and sequestration of PFAS. Today, I will be talking with Dr. Peter Jaffe of Princeton University about biodegradation of PFAS. I chose this topic because it challenges the notion of PFAS as forever chemicals, and the prospect of PFAS biodegradation is desirable and encouraging. So let's learn more about this topic from one of its innovators. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Hi, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome, and we appreciate you joining us. Um, so I guess just so we can get acquainted and the audience can get to know you a little bit better, uh, could you please tell us about your position as the William L. Knapp 47 Professor of Civil Engineering at Princeton? I'm a professor in civil environmental engineering at Princeton University. I'm also a member of the Andinger Center for Energy and Environment and the High Meadows Environmental Research Institute. My background is in water pollution. I've been looking at fate and transport of contaminants over the years, looking at both physical, chemical, and biological factors that affect the fate and transport of contaminants, focused both on surface waters groundwaters, um, groundwater remediation, and also water, wastewater treatment. I do both modeling and experimental work and have often liked sort of the interface between modeling and experimentation, use experiments to drive models and models to drive experimentation. And I've been at Princeton since 1985, so most, all, all, pretty much all of my career. Okay. Great. Um, well, fate and transport of contaminants is definitely a passion of mine. Um, also interested in, in connecting models with empirical evaluation. So I'm glad we're able to have you on the, the program to talk with us today. Uh, you mentioned physical, chemical, and biological processes. That's something also that's interesting to me, that multifaceted research approach. Um, could you talk a little more, please, about how you combine uh, physical, chemical, and biological processes in your research approach? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, when you look at the fate of a contaminant in soil or, or water, surface groundwater, you cannot, you cannot separate them out. I mean, when we look at, very simple, at the biodegradation of a component, absorption is important. In general, we believe that the strongly sorbed component is not easily degradable, that it has to desorb first before it's degradable. So in, in order to understand biodegradation, we need to understand sorption. Um, many organic contaminants, volatilization is important. So we need to understand the partitioning between gas and water phase. Um, we've been looking at, at contaminants in wetlands where um, flow of water in the rhizosphere and the flow towards the plant affects the flow of the of the contaminants in in the rhizosphere. And you have pockets from a chemical point of view um, that are sort of sometimes quite interesting, where um, you do have pores that are highly reduced, others that are more oxidized. So we can come up very simply with a 
average redox potential, but that average redox potential doesn't really exist. We have this binomial distribution. When you look now at the behavior of the chemical at that average redox potential, it's doing something completely different than what you observe. So you do have to understand the spatial distribution of, let's say, redox potential in, in soil, especially unsaturated soils, sorption, volatilization. So it's, it's, it's hard to look at any of those problems holistically without without combining biological, physical, and chemical, all three of these processes. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm uh, interested to get more into um, you know PFAS in particular. You know where it occurs in these environmental compartments or different parts of the environment, as well as some of the redox conditions. Um, but before we get into that, um, I understand that you spoke about PFAS to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, subcommittees on the environment and also research and technology. Um, I guess that was back in December. So first of all, thank you for representing the science of PFAS in Congress. And would you tell us about uh, that experience, please? Sure. The objective of that committee was to identify research needs to understand the fate and transport of PFAS and identify where the federal government could could help in 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 aiding research and research collaborations between agencies etc two sort of broader issues that I brought up um, was one that the latest I looked we have 4,700 PFAS, I think later numbers show over 9,000. I'm not quite sure where we are. Um, that's a huge number. And um, the properties are very, very different. It's when we looked at, at PCBs, for example, 30, 40 years ago, um, the, the number is much, much smaller. I think the, the typical um, different monomers are somewhere in the 130 range. Um, their properties are very similar. When you look at fate and transport of those different uh, PCB monomers, they're, they're not terribly different. Um, they're not as varied as PFAS. So, so we need to, we cannot study 7,000, 9,000 PFAS individually. We need to group them into uh, groups that have similar properties and then understand their toxicity and transport based on those properties. For example, we can focus on perfluoroalkyl acids and then see systematically what happens as, as the carbon chain becomes longer or shorter. Um, so one recommendation was to sort of group them in a logic way and understand the, the, the transport toxicity of, of them by group. The other sort of broad recommendation plea I made is that it, PFAS analysis, as you know, is extremely expensive. Um, when you send out a sample for commercial analysis, we're talking about 400 plus dollars. Um, that is a barrier for many individuals to enter PFAS research. So there could be lots of scientists that have good ideas on what to investigate, but, but the analytics is a barrier. So there are multiple ways of addressing that. I'm not an analytical chemist, but can we develop analytical techniques that are not quite as expensive. Um, in the absence of that, if we're talking about federally funded PFAS research, we there are Department of Energy examples where we have large analytical facilities, um, user facilities. The 
PFAS user facility, maybe maybe something that that would facilitate much uh, research in the PFAS area. Um, and finally, if, if none of those um, um, is, is feasible, um, Congress has to realize that doing PFAS research is more expensive. That when I mean NSF, the typical NSF grant is hundred thousand a year. Uh, Maybe you can do it when you focus on nitrogen or TCE, but not on PFAS. So, so the grant has to be a proportionally larger to allow for these, these costs. So that is sort of the larger examples. Um, more detail to PFAS, I, I sort of point out that we need to understand sources. We don't fully understand sources. We, we have focused on the AFFF sources in firefighting foam. Um, we EPA is focusing very much on, on landfills, which is a big source of PFAS, but what else? We, we know that um, there's some agriculture fields or cow cattle pastures that are contaminated with PFAS. The milk has to be thrown away. We don't understand these sort of kind of more diffuse sources in the Cape Fear River has large sections of uh, sediments contaminated with PFAS. We are doing research on the Noose River. We see PFAS in many locations in Noose. That is very little understood. Uh, and so we need to understand those more diffused sources. How important are they? Um, can we address them? Um, then sort of digging down more, like, like going, going, for example, at, at my interest level, um, we know that PFAS can be biotransformed and there's limited evidence that PFAS can be degraded, that perforacal acids can be degraded. We need to understand that at a very fundamental level. What, what the organisms that, that are able to degrade PFAS, what are the key enzymes? What are the genes that are being expressed? Can we use that to track in other environments? Is that gene present or some similar enzymes present so that and what is needed to stimulate them. Um, so they, we, we may have organisms that could defluorinate PFAS, but they need something, some specific redox potential or very specific conditions that we don't understand. And for bioremediation, so we, we need to understand that. Well, I think that's great perspective. Um, you know, I think that you know, that captures a number of key elements of the PFAS issue. And again, appreciate you, you know, representing the science of PFAS to Congress. You mentioned the perfluoroalkyl acids. I think, you know, that's obviously a natural grouping to look at. And I think that's one that we're probably most aware of and, and taking head on, but, you know, maybe there are other groupings out there. So you, in your your answer to that question, you also started to get into uh, kind of the crux of your research, and that's, you know, the microbes that might be able to degrade PFAS, and that's what I wanted to get into next, so I think that's a good segue. I understand that Acidomicrobium bacterium A6 is the microbe that has been identified to degrade PFAS, uh, so I guess, first of all, did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Okay. A mouthful, yes. <laughs> um, okay, so I guess first of all, how was that microbe uh, isolated and identified? That's an interesting story, and I can let me let me go back. And so we we did work 
in the early 2000s, so 25 years back on, and much of my work focused on wetlands, um, biogeochemical processes affecting pollutants. I was working with a colleague who unfortunately is no longer with us, Joan Ehrenfeld from Rutgers. She was a, a wetland ecologist and plant ecologist. And we were looking in the, we had a USDA grant to look at the effect of nitrogen runoff into wetlands. She was interested how it affects, affects plant speciation. I was more interested how the nitrates affect the iron cycle since nitrates, especially nitrites, can reoxidize ferrous iron and that then would sequester trace metals or metalloids like arsenic. So I wanted to see how that, that, that affects these dynamics. Um, we did the preparation, we did some field work at the Assumpink Wildlife Management Area in New Jersey. Year one, we had our plots, reference plots that the next year we wanted to fertilize and, and the next year was a drought. So you could have had a completely dry picnic in your wetland. So out of desperation, I told my student, Juno Sestra, let's, let's take a few soil cores and take them to the lab and incubate in the lab. That's the next best thing we can do. And then we can add uh, ammonium or whatever too. Uh, and that was, that was fortuitous, but that was, that, that yielded our findings. So when, when we did those incubations, um, it, Juno came to me and says, look, ammonium is going down. Uh, and ferrous iron is going up. And, and so I said, look, I have, besides anamox, I mean, we, we, we believe that ammonium is mostly an aerobic oxidation process. And um, anamox requires nitrite. We did not have nitrite or nitrate in, in the soil. So as the first says, let's, let's, do, let's do the energetics. Um, is it possible that you could oxidize ammonium with ferric iron as electron acceptor. And yes, the thermodynamics showed that it's feasible. So we published in 2005 a little paper that, that sort of postulated that we have ammonium oxidation under iron reducing conditions. A year later, completely independent, uh, a Japanese chap, Sawayama, uh, found something similar in a reactor and he called this process FIAMOX as a plate to animox. And, and the paper is not very detailed. You don't know the redox potential in the reactors, but, but okay. So he, his, his contribution was this name, Fiamox. Then again, maybe 2012, um, a group at Berkeley um, found something similar in rainforest soils in Puerto Rico. And, and then we got, then we got sort of really our interest peaked more and says, look, this is, this is something, there's something to it. Um, and um, I'm fortunate being at Princeton, um, we do have some internal fundings. It's, it's not trivial for an engineer to go to NSF and say, we want to dig into microbiology. We think there's a new pathway in the nitrogen cycle. We get never fly. But so we, we got some internal funding. I hired a microbiologist, uh, Dr. Huang. We went back to the site. We were delighted we could find our site uh, seven years later. <laughs> um, we were delighted that we could reproduce our results from seven years later. So we, we could do the incubations. We did see under anaerobic conditions, iron reduction, and then the production of nitrite and ammonium disappearing. 
And then with, with very careful work, um, Dr. Huang managed to detect that there was an acetobacterium that was growing and over the 100 years incubation, that culture was enriched for this acetobacterium. And um, the name A6 is sort of fortuitous. She had multiple experiments, A, B, C, D, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and the group A and the sixth one is where she found this organism growing. And I, I think we could have probably come up with something more creative in naming it, but that's how it was an acetobacterium and that's how the A6 came from. Um, so we linked that to the FIAMOX process. Um, it, to be honest, it was a major pain to get that published. Um, microbiologists were a little skeptic of engineers coming up with a new organism, um, but we got it published. Then we went further once having that organism. So again, we linked it to the FIAMOX process, which is ammonium oxidation, ammonium is the electron donor, iron, ferric iron is the electron acceptor. But we couldn't really prove in an enrichment culture that that organism was the one responsible for the FIAMOX process. In 2018, we managed to isolate it and show that the pure culture of this acetobacterium A6 was able to oxidize ammonium and reduce iron. Um, we then looked at the, did the sequencing and, and we found that it has had a series of interesting um, genes for enzymes. One was an enzyme very similar, to, related to methane monooxygenase. And, and that one was expressed every time we, we had ammonium oxidation. The organism can either at least live with ammonium as electron donor or hydrogen. When it grows on ammonium, it expresses that enzyme, that gene. When it grows on hydrogen, um, it didn't. And actually, over over a few generations, it would lose that. It was the, that gene is on a plasmid; it would lose it. So we, going back to TCE, we we know that trichloroethylene um, can be epoxidized by methane monooxygenase. And since this was related to methane monooxygenase, we we tested and we could see that. It, TCE was degraded. Um, that was a little paper. Then we looked more and we realized that it has a whole bunch of dehalogenases. So the next question was, um, given the in, in interest in PFAS, can we degrade PFAS? So I talked with Dr. Huang and we said, look, let's, let's, let's get these, I think we picked 15 different PFAS. Um, and, and let's do incubations. Let's see first at what levels they're toxic. The most were not toxic. In most cases, we could go to 100, over 100 milligrams per liter, and they were not toxic in a sense that it would not suppress significantly the rate of ammonium oxidation. Okay. So, so given, given that we didn't have the analytics, that looking for fluoride is easiest, we did a whole bunch of incubations, all, all 15 of them at 100 ppm. And sort of three weeks later, she knocks on my door and says, I see fluoride. And I said, in which one? And she says, in all of them. That's <laughs> that exciting. Was, that was exciting, but of course, I exciting, but I did not believe 100%, right? So the poor Dr. Wang had to do things over and over, and we sent it to multiple labs for independent verification. But it always came back that we did 
dfluorinate. Um, this PFAS, then we focused on PFOA, PFOS. Again, we, we did much more careful incubations and we sent them to uh, different commercial labs. Um, they all came back the same. Uh, fluoride analysis are not trivial. Um, so we did the fluoride with different um, ion chromatography columns. Uh, we did send some out um, analytically, but at the end, at the end, we we convinced ourselves that this is real. Um, and that was then the paper that we had in ESNT in 2019. Again, sort of, we tried, I think, nature, and they said we're not interested. Then we tried PNS, and they said, oh, this is this is a topic that is not of enough interest. So we went to ESNT, and the paper has over 24,000 downloads so far. So there is interest in the topic, as you and I know, but, but the editors did not necessarily see it. Um, we have since looked more carefully at multiple PAs. So we, you, you, you know that especially the, the hardest PFAS to defluorinate are the fully, the perfluorinated ones that are fully saturated with fluorine except the function group. So we tried several um, polyfluorinated polyfluorine alkyl acids um, from 10 to 4 carbons. We could degrade them all. Um, puzzling still, and I don't that that the penta perfluoropentanoic acid was slower than the hexanoic butanoic acid. So, but different vendors, uh, we, we don't we, we don't quite understand why there was this dip for that specific one. Um, what was interesting, we then looked at several of well, no, we look perfluorooctanoic acid and perfluorooctanosulfonic acid, and we we looked at linear um, molecules versus branched ones. And branched ones are not easy to get. Uh, we we typically have to get analytical standards for the branched ones. Um, and what we could see is that the linear ones we could defluorinate a single branch. We could defluorinate two branches. Would be inert, so they, we, we we would not somehow didn't, didn't defluorination didn't work. Um, so I think the majority of the perfluoroalkyl acids are linear, um, but there could be a few branch ones. I when I talked to folks at, at Chemors, they said at least what they produced originally was they believe was mostly linear. Um, it is possible that the branched ones, branched perfluoroalkyl acids are products of the degradation of, of compounds in, in AFFF or other kind of precursors. So that's where we are. Um, this, this actinobacterium is a real, I mean, as exciting as it is, it's, it's not your favorite bacterium. Your um, E. coli has a doubling time of 20 minutes. This has a doubling time of two weeks. So it's, hmm. it's, and you can imagine, I mean, it's a anaerobes grow slow, autotrophs grow slow. Here we have an anaerobic autotroph. It grows agonizingly slow. Um, and, and that is something we need to work with. I mean, if you, as a 
someone working or interested in bioremediation, you could conceive that we would want a reactor that we grow the culture of these organisms and then inject them into a contaminated site. And of course, that will make things much more challenging. The other challenge is, and we have been able to grow enrichment cultures in membrane reactors, but it needs it needs iron, and the stoichiometry is um, six iron per ammonium, right? So, so you had that reactor, you had to add a lot of ferric iron, and after a couple of months, you have a solid mess, and it's very hard to separate the the bacterium from your ferrihydrite, the ferrihydrite gets slowly converted to magnetite, but we haven't figured out a good way to separate them. Um, fortunately, we have seen that you can grow it in electrolysis cells. So instead of transferring the electron to ferric iron, it can also transfer it to an anode. And we are now trying, and it's, it's touch and go to grow it in a continuous way in bioelectrochemical reactors so that, that we can grow it in the absence of, of iron. Um, it's not working 100%. It it's, could be mechanical issues with our reactor. And I I never know if we're two weeks from a breakthrough or two years. So it's <laughs> a little, little frustrating. But the organism is present in many sorts. So the organism is, it's, it's not, it's, we, we have done a survey, that was a paper, I think 2016, where we surveyed a whole bunch of soils in New Jersey that we just took, took a bunch of samples and then we collaborate with the Chinese Minister of the Environment. They sent us hundreds of samples from Southwest China and we could show that the organism is fairly common in iron-rich acidic soils. They have to be somewhat waterlogged, it's anaerobic, sort of same as geobacteria, I mean, you need this, it doesn't have to be saturated, but you need a moist soil to, to see them. So you need some, some pockets that are anoxic. Um, we did get a sample from um, McGuire Air Force Base. We did some initial DNA extraction, we didn't see it. Um, then we just, and there was enough ammonium, there was not no ferric iron, only ferrous iron, so we added some ferrihydrite, let it sit for two weeks, and it was there. And we could see that once it started to pop up, we could see changes in, in the composition of PFAS, because it was a PFAS contaminated site, but there were too many precursors, so, so all we could say is, yes, once we stimulated it and added ferric iron, we saw changes in the composition versus the samples that were sitting there that were not stimulated with, with ferrihydrite. And that tells me that even if the organism is slow, that there could be some sites where we can stimulate it so it starts growing without having to inject it. In probably acidic iron-rich sediments, but at least there would be some locations that we could start. Do you think there are um, instances where you have the occurrence of PFAS, you have the occurrence of the A6 bacterium in those geochemical conditions that you described, uh, anaerobic, iron-rich, and wet? I mean, that's 
that's a lot of variables that have to come together, but do you think there are instances out there where these microbes have been uh, working on PFAS, perhaps uh, without our knowledge? Or is it something that would have to be stimulated no, uh, to think, be useful? I think, there's, I think there's a good chance. So we, we have been looking at the Theomox process in, in the Noose River in North Carolina. In, and the reason we focus on that is that um, at, along the news, there are lots of these concentrated feedlots. There's a huge amount of, of ammonium um, going into news when you check at the concentration of ammonium. It's about five milligrams per liter of ammonium in some locations that we sampled. Um, the news has a, in general, um, acidic pH five-ish. And, and that area is iron-rich, the soil is iron-rich, lots of orange clay when you drive around. So, so we think, we thought that may be a good location to find the organism. We did some survey, we found it. Uh, we did incubations and we saw that there was a lot of um, ammonium oxidation um, under anaerobic conditions. Um, and then we decided let's, let's track some PFAS. So we did two things. We added a little bit of PFOA. We saw that, that there was defluorination. And then we, we tracked some sediments that we just incubated without doing anything, adding, um, I mean, analyzing for P, PFAS at the beginning and at the end. And we, um, we tracked PFOA, for example, we could see that it, it seems to be going down in some of those incubations. Now, of course, we disturbed the sediments, right? Of course, we shoveled them out, had them in a the bag, put them in the lab, put them in an incubator. So we didn't add any additional chemical, but but they did we somehow make iron more bioavailable by transporting them? I don't know. Well, you can't sample anything without disturbing, without disturbing it or measure it. That's, that's the nature of science, right? But it. These results indicate that it is possible that, that um, there are natural conditions where PFAS are actually being deflowered. I mean, that's exciting and definitely one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today. Um, you know, that 2019 paper that you mentioned definitely piqued my interest. And I think it uh, piqued the interest of a lot of people who had been holding out hope that uh, there might be a biodegradation pathway for PFAS, including the uh, perfluorinated compounds. So Dr. Jaffe, uh, uh, I understand and appreciate, you know, there might be challenges ahead uh, to, you know, optimize uh, this bacterium and, and how it uh, treats or degrades PFAS. But do you think this, is it possible that this is the tip of the iceberg, that maybe there are other microbes, bacteria out there in nature that we just haven't identified yet that could uh, be capable of degrading PFAS or may actually be in the process of doing so in the natural environment? I'm optimistic that there will be more organisms that that are able to degrade PFAS. And we, we may be at a point where we were, I wasn't part of it, but 40 years ago with, with chlorinated contaminants, right? We, we, thought, we thought they were not degradable and then they found some organisms, and then there are plenty of organisms that, that seem to be able to uh, dechlorinate uh, different chlorinated compounds. Um, of course, chlorinated compounds are more common, they're more natural analogs than, than fluorinated compounds, but there are fluorinated compounds in nature. Um, having identified the dehalogenase 
gene that is the gene for the dehalogenase, reductive dehalogenase that's expressed every time we see defluorination by acetylmacrolium A6. Um, you, you can do a search and there is an other acetobacterium that was discovered, I forgot the name, in, in the Black Sea sediments the 2018 or 2016 or so that has the same sequence for a dehalogenase. So, so other bacteria seem to have the same sequence for the same dehalogenase. And then there's no reason not to believe that there couldn't be other dehalogenases that could defluorinate um, PFAS. Um, there are some indications that some um, pseudomonas, some initial results may may have been linked to defluorination of a PFOA. It's, 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 it's very, very incipient, these, these results. And, and there are folks that are working on, on fungi and that seem to also indicate that there's some fungi that can defluorinate perfluoroalkyl acids. Okay. I, I am optimistic that, that in a couple of years there will be more discoveries and 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 hopefully organisms that, that are a little bit less finicky than this acerbacterium <laughs> yeah i think there's a lot of hope and optimism for a biodegradation pathway for pfas um i think you do a good job of keeping it in perspective and um you know it, articulating you know the challenges ahead and what needs to be done but it just you know, I just think back through history and other chemicals and contaminants that have been a challenge. You, you mentioned uh, chlorinated compounds and PCBs, and you know, it seems like as history tends to repeat itself, eventually there's a bacterium that can degrade it, and people find it to be uh, occurring more and more in nature. But you also uh, make a good contrast between uh, PFAS and some of these other compounds. Um, you know, you started out by saying, you know, PCBs are so uh, fewer PCBs than PFAS and, you know, the chemistry is different. So I think that's important to bear in mind. Um, I guess maybe working towards, um, you know, applying or relying on these bacteria for a solution, I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk about biosolids. Congratulations to you and your team on your recent publication in the Journal of Hazardous Materials, and that paper is titled Anaerobic Degradation of PFOA in Biosolids by Acidomicrobium SP strain A6, the bacterium that we've been talking about. And as I started to mention, the topic of PFAS in biosolids has been receiving a lot of attention in the scientific and regulatory communities. Uh, so I think the practical or the prospect of practical application of uh, PFAS biodegradation and biosolids is encouraging and, and also tying it back to um, some of our original dialogue, Dr. Jaffe, you talked about we need to understand sources better. You know, we're, we're very familiar with firefighting foam sources, but there are some more diffuse and non-point source type sources where, for instance, biosolids have been land applied. So I think that uh, that's a good example of those types of sources. So with that, um, could you talk about that study and some of the results, please? Sure. Um yeah, look, I, I to be honest, I hadn't spent this much time thinking about biosolids until I got a lot of phone calls from from plant operators, industrial and domestic 
different parts of the world as, uh, after our 2019 paper about would it work in biosolids. So, so our interest got peaked and we, we decided to um, look at biosolids and then we, we started a collaboration with Chemors. Um, they have a plant, they have plants where they had PFAS, they were generous enough to provide us their sludge. We got biosolids that we generated in the lab. We wanted PFAS-free biosolids, so we could do some kind of a mass balance. And, and so we generated biosolids in our lab and then contaminated them with PFAS. And the, I, the question was then, once we have the biosolids, can we seed them with the Acylobacterium A6 at ferrihydride and would, would we degrade um, the PFAS? We, we focus here on mostly PFOA. Um, and one of the questions was when you look at sort of the traditional way you, you, you write the degradation of a sorbing component, you see that the rate is then divided by one over the partition coefficient multiplied by the density. Um, it's some sort of reaction retardation. Um, so I was afraid that, that maybe, maybe that would slow the reaction very, very much. But um, we did the incubations and, and we could see that the dissolved and total PFAS in the biosolids augmented with the bacterium. And only if we added ferric iron, uh, we would see defluorination. And um, that happened in our clean biosolids that we contaminate with PFOA plus the ones that we obtained from um, the industrial plant. The real field ones were a little bit more complicated. Um, we saw that there was, I think it was perfluoroheptanoic acid, if I remember right, you have to look at the paper, um, was actually increasing um, indicating there was some kind of a precursor. But PFOA, a perfluoroheptanoic acid, was decreasing. Uh, we saw the production of fluoride. Um, and we could see that it was not just the dissolved PFOA, but also the total extractable PFOA in the biosolids were, were decreasing. Um, again, at a rate, uh, I have to look at the paper exactly, but half-life of a, a month, roughly or so. Um, it's not shot terribly fast. I mean, but but it was it was measurable. So the the next thing we need to look at is how can we scale that up? And so now what, I mean, you could conceivably what we have in mind and, and that would be, let's say, if we, we have a pile of biosolids that are contaminated with PFAS, can we add a ferric iron source, seed them with, with the Acylobacterium A6, let them sit in the pile for a month. Um, hopefully the PFAS groups below it desired level, then maybe we can dispose two thirds of the pile and leave the other third as the seed for the next round. Um, that's what we're doing now in the lab. Um, uh, with, with sludge from our local treatment plant, right now, the very, very first results, the Acylobacterium 6 is not growing as well in that sludge as we would like to. Um, so, but. But we're just starting. Um, now, it would be 
if if a con concept like what I just described works, it would be a relatively simple way of, of treating um, or removing um, PFAS from biosolids. Starting to wrap up here, um, you've, we really appreciate your participation and in going into the details of the VMUX process and how these microbes uh, can degrade PFAS under certain conditions. Um, so Dr. Jaffe, could you just sum up for us um, the challenges, limitations, and further research that needs to be conducted or that you would like to conduct? We have, because again, analytical difficulties, we find it easy to work with somewhat higher concentrations. Um, we do not know for certain how low we can go in, in terms of degradation. Um, once we are in the parts per trillion level, Can we, can we bring it down to drinking water standards? Um, I'm not terribly concerned if we couldn't. I mean, if we focus on, on the highly contaminated source areas and if you can bring it down by an order of magnitude, that's a big, big win. But so how low we can get at this point, I don't know. When you look at all of our experiments, we typically remove 50%, but we can always remove 50% <laughs> independent on the concentration we started. and. And at that point, we stop removing ammonium, right? So in our little batch experiments, uh, we are building up enough um, metabolites that, that, that will, and, 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 and degradation products, ferrous iron, pH goes up, we consume the CO2, it's, it's an autotroph that needs um, um, CO2 as its carbon source so that the reaction will stop. So I don't think that any of these would indicate that the that we cannot go further in terms of that there's a lower limit of PFAS, just that, that the reaction, even, even without PFAS, even the simple ammonium oxidation stops. Um, okay. um, how far, so we, we need to understand how, how to go from these sort of laboratory batch experiments to something that mimics nature a little bit easier. And that's not, that's not easy. To, to do something anaerobic, well-controlled, but in a continuous phase. Um, and we have to do, and I hope um, that we will be able to do some field testing. Um, we, we are getting certain funding to get, identify sites and identify conditions so that maybe after that we can try to do a little bit of a, go to field testing um, site. Hopefully, one where the organism could be um, available. The next challenge is, even if it is available, even if, it exists, if you stimulate it a lot, um, you're going to run out of ferric iron, right? And, and it needs ammonium or hydrogen and ferric iron. So ammonium is easy to supply, but ferric iron is not. It's a solid, right? And, and it's positively charged, our soil is negatively charged. So how, how do you supply it to an aquifer? I mean, the sludge is easy, we just mix it in. Topsoil may be easy, you can plow it under, but once you go a little bit deeper than plow depth, I mean, how do you how do you supply that ferric iron? So we are looking at um, ways of encapsulating ferry hydride in, in different polymers and, and change the zeta potential to make it transportable. So far, results are promising, and we can do that um, as long as divalent ions are not too high. 
Well, we hear a lot about the recalcitrance of PFAS and the strength of the carbon-fluorine bond, but it's interesting to hear that you know the limiting factors here might be the availability of ammonium and iron, iron especially. So that's interesting. Well, I think that sums up you know the challenges um, in the work that needs to be done, and I think people need to. I think everyone's excited about the prospect of the biodegradation of PFAS, but we need to keep it in perspective. And I think you've given us good perspective on that. But let's conclude uh, on a positive note. And you know, could you outline um, what are the exciting prospects, and what could the future hold for the biodegradation of PFAS as a solution or part of a solution? I think that for at least some sites, we will be in a few years at a point where we can stimulate organisms, uh, bio-augment them if needed uh, to degrade uh, PFAS and at least reduce the mass of, of the perfluoroalkyl acids um, um, to, to levels that are more acceptable. Um, we can hopefully also understand under what conditions in nature, they may be natural in the defluorination. Um, I think our our examples in the news are promising, and we much 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 more preliminary. We in the in the Cape Fear, which is right next to news, we don't see it so far, uh, but there the P Cape Fear is a higher pH than the news, so so it, we may be able to identify what environments um, you are more likely to see, see natural generation. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, learning more and hearing out, hearing what those environments might be. And so with that, uh, that wraps up this episode of the Disrupting PFAS podcast. Thank you to Dr. Peter Jaffe of Princeton University for joining us today. It was a great uh, conversation and great information. I'm your host, Jeff Hale, reminding you to never save forever.